Our sermon text this evening is the book of Romans, chapter 8. We will be looking at verses 1 through 4. Please hear the word of God Almighty. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Almighty God, have mercy on your people. We ask, O Lord, for your Holy Spirit to discern and understand and believe your word. Have mercy, O God, on your poor servant. Bless the words of my mouth and purify them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this passage here we see tonight, we see principally a promise to assure or comfort God's people. So there is a promise. Secondly, there is going to be the provision on which God bases that promise. And then thirdly, there are going to be the people to whom that promise is given, or the people who are comforted by that promise. So we have a promise, God's provision for that promise, and then the people who are comforted by that promise. Beginning in verse 1, we find immediately a difficulty in the first half of the verse of our passage. The Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that in itself is not at all difficult. That is a lovely and comforting truth of Scripture. The difficulty is, is that when we read the word condemnation, we tend to think of condemnation as the opposite of our justification, which we define as an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins, and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ and imputed by faith alone. Now, this is how Paul has used the term condemnation in Romans chapter 5, in verses 16 and 18. He says this, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. He's talking about Adam and Adam's sin and the condemnation which came from it. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. And again in verse 18 he says of chapter 5, Therefore as through one man's offense judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. In these instances, it is clear that condemnation and justification are opposites. The presence of one is the absence of the other. 
And that makes good sense because in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, the apostle was teaching us the doctrine of justification by faith. That is to say, the pardon of our sins in the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us that we may stand innocent before God. However, between chapter 5 and where we are in chapter 8, we have had chapters 6 and 7 in which the apostle taught us about the doctrine of sanctification. He had moved on from our being justified to our being sanctified. Sanctification, again, we define as that work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. At the end of chapter 7, right here, just before we come to chapter 8, we saw that in God's work of sanctification, justified people find themselves in the midst of an irreconcilable war between the corrupted part of their nature and the renewed part of their nature. We call the remnants of indwelling sin and the grace of the Holy Spirit. And in one man, there is this struggle between these two powers or principalities. Now, chapter 8 then begins with a conclusion. Notice that there is therefore now no condemnation. If we read the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, if we just read them straight through without taking a week in between them or, or paying attention to the chapter breaks, well, let's just do this. At the end of chapter 7, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Something worth asking at this point is why should the fact that I still have sin and that sin is still fastened to me like a body of death and that with my flesh I serve the law of sin but with my mind I serve the law of God, why should that logically tell me that I will not be condemned. The difficulty is slightly increased for us when we reach verse 2, which speaks not of being pardoned for sin and counted as righteous, but of being set free from the law of sin and death. Almost all interpreters agree that verse 2 is describing God's work of sanctification. Sounds very much like what we read in chapter 6. But notice that verse 2 begins with this little word, for. This means that in some way, verse 2 either explains or proves what we just read in verse 1. In other words, we are not condemned because we are set free from the law of sin and death. What we want to avoid saying or thinking is that we are justified because we are sanctified. Therefore, what I propose to you is that while the term condemnation does indeed refer to the guilt of sin, which is pardoned in our justification, it must also have some reference to the power of sin, 
which is overcome in God's work of sanctification. What I think then is that this verse, verse 1, is telling us that in spite of the remaining corruption in us, God is not going to abandon us to the consequences of sin, namely condemnation. This condemnation includes both the guilt of our sin and the power of our sin. The guilt of our sin is pardoned in justification, and the power of our sin is broken in sanctification. Consider for a moment this scenario. Suppose that God offered you free pardon for all your sins, which he does, but then he did not also promise to deliver you from the power of sin so that you would continue for eternity being forgiven for your sins. Whatever sin you might commit, God forgives, but you would always be attached and under the power of sin. I think that to the godly, that itself would be a type of condemnation. It would be miserable, and that is the very thing that I think we are, in this passage, being taught that we are delivered from. Not only that guilt of sin, but also that power of sin. And this makes some sense if you recall that in Adam's fall, part of the passing on of sin and corruption to mankind was a judgment. Right? God judged mankind because of Adam's sin. Therefore, all men became sinners. But um, if that is not agreeable to you, here is what we will do. You take the promise here in verse 1 to mean that God promises whatever condemnation entails. Whatever condemnation is, there is none of it for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the remainder of verse 1 is uh, repeated in verse 4, and we will pick that up when we come to that point. But for now, we move to consider our second point. But before we do, let's just set this. Condemnation is something that does not continue or exist for those who are in Christ. I am submitting to you that condemnation includes not only the guilt of sin, but also the power of it. And part of the reason why we say we are not condemned after having discussed sin dwelling in us is that God promises to destroy and break that power just as he promises to forgive our sins. But we can take it just to mean whatever condemnation means, all right? Whatever condemnation means, those in Christ are not under it. Now then, let's look at how God provides for this promise. As with all of God's promises, there's always someone who pays for it. Do you understand? God does not just offer promises to us that cost him nothing. And God does not give us promises for things that we could accomplish for ourselves. The very nature of a promise is, is God doing something for us that we can't do for ourselves. So here then in verses 2 and 3, we see how God provides. He gives a, the ground, the, the solid foundation for the promise that he offers. What God has done and how he has done it. There is no condemnation. And then continuing into verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. 
Recall back in chapter 6 that the law of sin and death refers to the power of sin over sinners. We read that we were once slaves to sin, but we were delivered from sin by virtue of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Recall further that the law of sin and death operates on the principle of wages, debt. The wages of sin is death. That's what we read in chapter 6, verse 23. Those who serve sin receive the reward that is due unto them. When you labor in the field of sin, you can be certain that you will receive, at the end of the day, the appropriate wages. Sin deserves death, and its wages are death. Now, as fallen sinners, we were slaves of sin, which means that at one time we were subject to the law of sin and death. But now we are under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus, in fact, has made us free from that law of sin and death. So meaning we are no longer under the slave program. We are no longer under the wages. We are no longer subject to the death that comes from sin. The law of the spirit of life here in verse 2 refers to the new principle and the new power under which Christians now operate. The new principle is grace. And that was the second half of Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The, so rather than being under the wage system where we get what we are owed, we get grace. And the new power that we have is the effectual working of God, the Holy Spirit. This is explained a little later in Romans chapter 8, and we'll get to it, Lord willing, in verse 11, but it says this. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Notice that the spirit who dwells in you is that very same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And that's what I mean by the effectual working, the power of God, the Holy Spirit working. And as Romans 11, 8, 11 says, to give life to our mortal bodies. Now, to give life to our mortal bodies, of course, ultimately refers to what we call the bodily resurrection. One day we will who believe in Christ will hear the voice of Christ and he will call us out of our tombs and we will be reunited with our souls. But in the meantime, the same principle is at work in us, giving life to us in our mortal bodies. Just as the Holy Spirit reconstitutes decaying or dissolved bodies, he is reconstituting Christians to have that nature which God created them with, to, to be free from the corruption and weakness related to sin and to be remade into the image of God, to be renewed, or as uh, Jesus talked about in John chapter 3, being born again. 
All right, so this effectual working of the Holy Spirit is said here to be in Christ. And what this means is that God the Holy Spirit imparts to you, gives to you the merits and blessings obtained by your Savior, Jesus Christ. You no longer receive what you deserve. You now receive grace. You receive what Jesus deserves. All of this to say that you are now governed by a new principle and empowered by a new power. The new principle is grace. The new power is God the Holy Spirit who applies to us the merits of Jesus Christ. And he has freed us from the law of sin and death. So, God has set you free. Verse 3 continues and explains that while you deserved condemnation, God freed you and in a twist condemned sin. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Notice, first of all, that while you were under the law of sin and death, even the law of God could not free you from it. And the reason that the law of God, as good as it is, as righteous as it is, as holy as it is, all that the law of God is, the reason that the law of God could not free you is that it was weakened by the flesh. That is to say, your flesh. The law of God could not do for you what you would have wanted it to do because you yourself were sinful, sold into sin. So the law of God can show you what God requires. And it can show you when you fall short of those requirements. It can show you your guilt. It can show you what you deserve but the law could not give you the power to keep those requirements. Nor could the law provide for you the forgiveness for failing to keep those requirements. Simply because your sinful flesh lacked the power to do what God required. It's no fault of the law, but rather the fault of the sinners who cannot keep the law. Nevertheless, the law was not able to do that. Therefore, God in his mercy... Rather than giving you the death that you deserve, sent his beloved son to suffer. Note at this point here in verse 3 that all three persons of the Trinity have been mentioned in these four verses, have been mentioned. We have God the Son, who is being sent by God the Father. We have God who sent his Son, obviously God the Father. And of course, we have God the Holy Spirit, who has applied the work of God the Son. Now, God sent his own son. This is interesting. His own son, right? Um, he, he is God's unique son, God's beloved son, his only begotten. Similar to God's relationship with, his, or excuse me, Abraham's relationship to his son Isaac. Isaac, his son. Isaac, his son whom he loves. God sent his own son, his unique son. But he sent him, Paul says, in the likeness of human flesh. He speaks, of course, of Christ's incarnation, in which Jesus assumed a human nature, took upon himself a man's body and soul, so that forever, even right now, Jesus is one person having two natures. He has a man's nature, and he has a divine nature. 
But he came having assumed this human nature, and with that human nature, he obeyed the law, he suffered under the law, he died for the penalty of sin, and he was raised again, and indeed, he even ascended and was seated at the right hand of God. All of this in his human nature. He assumed a true human nature, but not a sinful one. This is important for us to understand. God says that he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he did not send him in sinful flesh. That is to say that God gave Christ a real human nature, a real human body, a real human soul, with all of the attendant circumstances to it, but not one that was fallen in sin. There's a very simple reason why this is important to us, and that is we cannot be saved from sin by a Savior who had sin. We must have a sinless sacrifice to pay for our sins. So Christ came in the likeness of human flesh in order to deliver us from sin. Now, in sending his son, God delivered you but condemned sin. And think of this. When, when Christ said no to sin, when he died for sin, when he was raised in victory over sin, he was conquering sin for you in your place and in your nature. So sin was proven not to be the rightful ruler over you. But rather, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the rightful ruler over you. But don't miss this purpose now for which God sent his son in human flesh to condemn sin. But before we move on, let me just say, so God in condemning sin is essentially taking away sin's right and authority over those in Christ. He is as kicking sin out, as it were, judging sin, saying, you are not the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. All right, but we see the purpose here in verse 4. Why is it that God sent his son in human flesh to condemn sin? Verse 4, he says, he did it that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us in two ways. The first way is that we receive by imputation the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus, who always obeyed the law, gives to us his righteousness. So his obedience to the law is reckoned to us. But there is a second way that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. This is spoken of by the prophets. I'm going to just give one example from Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll begin in verse 25. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and you will keep my judgments and do them. In other words, God did not condemn sin in order that we might remain under the power of sin. In condemning sin, God removes its authority and power and replaces it with a new power and a new authority. God the Holy Spirit, who enables us more and more, as the Westminster Confession says, to die to sin and live to righteousness. And that's what the prophet Ezekiel was talking about. God says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to keep my judgments. I will cause you to do them. So that is the second way in which the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. That is to say, God the Holy Spirit working in us to bring about God's condemnation of sin. All right? So in, con in condemning sin, then God removes its power and its authority from you. And God, the Holy Spirit, enables you more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness, moving ever towards that day when the Lord raises you from the dead and that day when he glorifies you and conforms you perfectly to the image of his Son. Here, then, is where I see God removing all hints of condemnation and this, to me, is great comfort, knowing that even though I am not perfected in my sanctification, even though I continue to struggle with sin, God tells me there is no condemnation for me. There will be no judgment against me because I am in Christ. And one day, God will, in fact, utterly free me from any guilt or stain or power or presence of sin. Not only has he pardoned us from its guilt, but he also promises not to leave us under its power. Now then, who are the people that may be comforted by this promise? The promise, again, is that there's no condemnation. Who then are they that should be assured and comforted by this promise? Well, they are mentioned, as I said, in verse 1 and then again in verse 4. First of all, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see that in verse 1. Remember Jesus said this back in John 3, that those who are out of him are condemned. They're condemned already because they have not believed in God's Son. Right? So those who are outside of Christ are condemned. Those who are inside of Christ are not condemned. How are we in Jesus? Well, we have discovered before, we are in Jesus by faith. When we say to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to stand before you without Jesus. I don't want to stand here on my own behalf. I want to stand before you only in Jesus Christ. Because by him I have pardon of sins and, and only in him am I safe. That's what it is to be in Jesus. See, to believe in him and rely upon him to keep you safe. You say to the Lord, I want to know that I am forgiven from my sins. I want to be in Jesus. I want him to take my condemnation and I want his righteousness 
This is a question that is good for us to ask ourselves. Are we in Christ? If so, there is no condemnation. But do you notice that there is a second description of those who escape this condemnation? Did you see it was at the end of verse 1 and here it's again at the end of verse 4. Those in Christ are also described as those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. A way to look at this might be to say, how do I know that I am in Christ? Well, I believe. Okay, very good. How do I know that I believe? Ah, well, because I do not walk according to the flesh, but rather I walk according to the Spirit. And because I walk according to the Spirit, it means that I am in Christ. And because I am in Christ, it means there is no condemnation for me. Now, please do not misunderstand me here. It is not our walking in the Spirit which gives us the promise of no condemnation. It is Christ Jesus who gives us the promise of no condemnation It is, however, our walking in the Spirit and not according to the flesh that assures us that we really are believers in Christ. This means that even though there is a war in us between the flesh and the Spirit, and even though we may still find many instances of sin, It is ultimately God, the Holy Spirit, who will win. Those in Christ are characterized as those who walk according to the Spirit. And by this, the apostle means that by the power of the God, the Holy Spirit, they are moving in the direction that was set by Christ. They are moving the way that Christ is calling them. They are being obedient to Christ's commands. They are trusting his promises. Sometimes our walk is a bit more like a crawl, maybe a stumbling. But you know, it's okay to stumble in the right direction sometimes. And I want you to remember this, that that one step does not a journey make, right? That our, our walk of faith on this earth is comprised of many, many steps. And and if we focus only on on this misstep or that misstep, we can become very discouraged. But you have to ask yourself, is there a genuine pull? Is there a direction in which I am moving? And is that direction toward Christ? That's what it is to walk according to the Spirit. It is, as I've said before, not the perfection of our walking, but the direction. If you're going to fall, fall forward, right? Fall towards Christ. And I want to just point out that when when Paul describes this struggle of sin, the inner struggle of sin within the one man, right? You've got the flesh that is enticing him to sin, seeking to take him captive. And he says, so so in my flesh, I, I serve the law of sin, but in my spirit I serve the law, or in my mind I serve the law of God. Notice that it's possible to have that conflict going on and still be characterized as walking according to the spirit. The difference is, in the midst of all this conflict, who gets the edge? Who gets the edge? Who is, who's winning? 
Is, is God winning or is sin winning? And that determines which way your direction is. Beloved, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, we trust in your power and goodness. Help us, O God. We, we believe your assurance that there is no condemnation for us. And Lord, we know that that can't be based upon us. Lord, you did not save us according to our flesh. You do not sanctify us according to our flesh. And indeed, O God, you will not keep us according to our flesh. But you do it, Lord, according to your spirit. We ask, Lord, for more and more of your spirit that more and more you would put to death the sins in us and make us more and more alive unto righteousness. We ask these things for your glory and in Christ's name, amen.